You know, the only constant thing that we have is change. Yet so many people have fraught relationships with change. We deny it, resist it, or attempt to control it. The result of which is almost always some combination of stress, anxiety, burnout, and exhaustion. Brad Stelberg's New York Times September 3rd op-ed piece, Stop Resisting Change, offers a new perspective. As your podcast host, Fran McGarry of First Online with Fran's There's No Place Like Art, I felt compelled to tackle our shifting, ever-evolving, combustible times. How do we process change? By focusing on what we can control and trying to let go of what we can't. There's a concept called allostasis, and that can help. Stolberg defined it as stability through change. The way to stay stable through the process of change is by changing. If you want to hold your footing, you got to keep moving. It's about balancing acceptance with problem solving and moving forward to a new normal. He goes on to further state that allostasis doesn't ask us to sacrifice all agency. Rather, it asks us to partake in change by focusing on what we can control and trying to let go of what we can't. My guest today, activist and award-winning playwright and librettist, Katrine Fiu, has been traveling to conflict areas around the world, creating art to address human rights and social justice. Welcome, Katrine. Thank you so much, Fran. It's so lovely to be with you again. We're going to thrive in our lifetime, you know, and not just survive. Because it's not just about surviving. Stolberg suggested that we need to transform our relationship with change, leaving behind rigidity and resistance in favor of a new nimbleness, a, a means of viewing more of what life throws at us as something to participate in rather than fight. You know, we are always shaping and being shaped by change often at the very same time. Now, for the past three decades, your artistic mission is to rise up and make change. How have your stories induced audiences to not just be satisfied and thinking, but to achieve allostasis? What can we control and let go of and what we can't? Those are very profound questions, Fran. And uh, I did enjoy reading the article that you are talking about. I'd like to start by just giving a little bit of background about how I got to where I've come to, just in terms of how I think that positions myself as a, as a change maker, something that I never would have said about myself for decades, I would say. So as a person who has dedicated a lot of my life to writing plays and libretti about uh, human rights, after really going very deeply into the micro 
aspect of a story. So in other words, I'm looking at U.S. complicity and the Cambodian genocide have to go very deeply into the details. And when I started working on the stories related to that, I listened to Cambodian refugees in the Bronx, for example, doing an oral history project that lasted five years. So the listening process is something that is very important. And when I then went on to write about a variety of other subjects, such as an honor killing that happened in Turkey that also had a East-West divide story to it, I also was using anthropology and, and really trying to look at how a character that might be seen in the West as a mother who threw her daughter in a canal because the daughter dishonored her family, how that might not be black and white as what we would imagine. Flashing forward to many, many years later of looking at those stories, I see some very large trends that I put under the umbrella of human rights. And I would put at the top of those violence against women and post-traumatic stress disorder, for one, certainly climate change. And I see the way that I can explain change is that, and something that makes me very hopeful, is that as audiences and as people, and most importantly as human beings, we can, by looking at the big picture, be much better equipped, I think, at making change. Because if we look at, for example, violence against women, in the United States, we'll see examples that have been very much right now in the news, like Roe v. Wade. If we look at something regarding honor killing, we will see that that also happens everywhere around the world. So we cannot, I don't think at this point, look at the minutiae of the situation any longer. We have to look at how can we work together to make change in the world? So I, I'll start there as, a, as an initial answer. Well, okay. So you brought up a couple of different uh, important points. First of all, I don't think audiences realize the amount of research that a playwright does in the process of writing a play. So that's one important point that you made. And I loved the fact that you you delineated the difference between micro and macro. The micro is you get deep into the details and you actually take yourself to these places as part of your research to in order to create a macro vision, right? It's, it's an opportunity for, as a playwright, you want people to take a step back and see that whole picture. And the third important point that you brought out is the ever-evolving, changing trends that they've always been with us. 
it is part of the human condition. And what I'm interested in is learning more from you about how you balance these different trends and how through your artistic talents, you're able to get into that micro and create a macro vision. Yes. So as you were speaking and, and you summed it up so well, thank you. I was thinking, oh, Kat, you forgot the most important thing of all. And that is, I am really mostly a storyteller. Mm -hmm. And so all of those things I was talking about that have to do with themes, which there I certainly brought up a lot, have nothing to do really with my artistic practice in general, because I never set out structurally to talk about a theme. I set out to tell a story. And oftentimes when I do that, the theme can actually change. And why the story? Because I have come to understand as a craftsperson, because writing a play is a craft. And I need to just give a huge shout out to you, what you did at Young Playwrights and what Stephen Sondheim made possible was to teach that craft to young people, because it really is a craft. And the craft of storytelling in a play is quite excitingly logical. And so when I tell a story, for example, about a blind woman who suffers from psychosomatic blindness after what she witnessed during the Khmer Rouge regime, the story is simply about a woman who comes to the U.S. to be with her family and they long for her to be there and they have no idea how this is happening to her. And her eye doctor thinks she's lying because actually the brain waves are moving and it, it says that she can see, but she can't. So her brother even starts to suspect her. And it is only through the dramatic question of how can this character survive that we come to understanding more. And the answer to that is that she survives finally by being part of her family and no longer being isolated. So the stories are the things that make this kind of, you mentioned the word macro discoveries possible, simply because I've been told over and over by my human rights friends who are not in the world of theater, I've been told by them, you have no idea how important a play can be in helping people understand human rights. And long ago, when I would hear that, I was sort of like, uh, all right, well, that's good. But I don't, I didn't really understand. I think the thing that finally made me understand was after not being able to go to the theater because of one of the pandemics that we've had in, in this world, and that was COVID, that when I did go back to the theater for the first time, I went to see a play that was so life-changing for me because I was in the audience, I was watching something on stage, and I realized Oh, I mean, something we, that was so obvious with theater, we have to show up. We have to be in a community. It's not on a screen and it changes every time. And that is in this day and age revolutionary. And so I realized during that play that I came to it thinking, oh, well, I, you know, of course I know 
everything about this subject on some level. And I came out of the play reconfigured. I discovered something that I never knew I knew. Tell me more about that. That's really really interesting because you said a lot, but one of the things that you touch upon is that the theater is live. I mean, we all go into the theater accepting that we're going to suspend belief and that what's happening in that space. But once those lights go down and we see that story unfold in front of us, it taps into our hearts in a way that is so conciliatory and can cry and laugh at the same time. Right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. What was it that happened for you that you learned? And that's the other thing is that playwrights, people in the arts were evolutionary. We're constantly in a phase of one change or another. It is what makes us creative, be able to translate what we are feeling and to share that. Well, that, you know, I never thought about that till right this second, but that is actually one of the great joys of being in theater and being a playwright or, you know, I love actors. I started as an actor and I must say, I learned a lot about playwriting. I, I was a terrible actress, but, <laughs> but I did, I did I learn. So. No, 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 definitely. But I, you know, always writing the inner monologues and <laughs> But, but the thing, the thing is that you just pinpointed that is really true about why I love actors is talk about risk. I mean, they are in the front lines. You never know what is going to happen. And they put themselves out there in that way. So I completely agree with you. And I mean, the subject matter of the play that I was describing, much like mine, is very dark and very hard. And I was sort of going, okay, yeah, I know. And that, But then I watched what happened with the characters, and then there was a fight on stage, and I honestly thought that we were there. It really spoke to the great power of theater. I want to get back to that allostasis idea. Yes. Rather than resist change, as artists, we welcome it. We want to get into that micro deepness of what we call the human condition. Where does that germ of an idea spark in you? Like after you saw this play, how did it change or enhance your craft as a playwright Mm, yes for me what has inspired me and what connects to what you're saying is that i have always had a loyalty to the underdog we could go the freudian route and we could learn why that is true (laughs) and so growing up i was the child of immigrants The parents had very little idea oftentimes about the culture that we were living in. We also lived on the border between uh, California and, and Mexico. I saw in my own family how my parents were underdogs. I saw how the economic inequity was 
completely clear on the border. And something inside of me, maybe it was just DNA, was like, I got to fight. I, I have taken that kind of action in the work that I do to fight for survivors. And as I listen to the story of su survivors, I feel, of course, after all these years, beholden to and responsible for what they told me because they have entrusted things with me that are so deep that I have no choice but to continue to fight that fight. And that fight now is very palpable, as you can imagine, in the world and in the country that we live in. And I think that, you know, in terms of the article that you're talking about, that I think sometimes people feel overwhelmed with that fight. And yet, I think we all have such agency now to be part of the fight. And I can tell you firsthand that change is possible. That even though there is sometimes that sense of like, well, what could I do at this point? I know that change is possible because I've seen it happen. Oh, let's share some of those stories. I want to hear some of those. So you want to hear about how change is possible? Yeah. What did you witness? I have a friend right now who is so brave. I have two friends. One, they're both in the opposition party in Cambodia. But honestly, I think that you can completely relate this exactly to what's happening in the United States or in many other countries. One of my friends is in prison and she is so brave that she has she just said no i'm sorry i i'm not i will i'm not gonna take no for an answer and then the other friend who's in the opposition party has made another choice which is equally strong and she's in exile these are people who walk the walk and the person that they're in opposition to is a strong man. He's a dictator. He's a, he's the head of the country. And we are in a very similar situation here in this country. And we're not going to, we're not going to accept it. I think as women, as women who have fought so hard and we've fought in the theater. When I was a playwright long ago, I would say I'm a woman playwright. And people would say, oh, I didn't know there were any besides Lillian Hellman. Seriously. There's a sense of being erased that has happened to us. And I think a lot of women can relate to that. And what's really difficult about that is that it sounds dramatic and like people will say, yeah, that people will say, oh, well, that can't be true. That, you know, what is she talking about? And and then sort of place things on to the person who says it. But it's true. And, you know, one of the reasons why it may be true is that those kinds of stories, the stories that we tell, are not maybe the stories that certain mainstream people want to hear, maybe. When you decided to get the stories in Cambodia, what was it that attracted you to that particular cause and that particular story? 
Well, at the at the beginning was the storytelling mystery of in this first story how blind women could say that they're blind and and not be blind scientifically. So, you know, as a storyteller, I'm like, I'm down with that story. I want to do that because it's such a good story. And, you know, just to, as, as sure. another thing to, to add, oftentimes in the medical field, women are compromised. Absolutely. Well, get over it. Get hysterical. Over it. well hysterical was used. Right. Hysterical blindness. <laughs> yeah. 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 So I started there, but then just like peeling the skin of an onion one learns more and more us complicity at the at the front of that so then i'm responsible i need to go in and figure out more about this and expose the truth which comes through my friends and my community and my growing awareness which never ends you know you're in the same situation as as me I'm curious about the actual play. If you could talk about it and the characters and share a little bit more about that. Which one? You decide. Oh, wow. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, that's so sweet. Well, I'm going to go with the one that's going to be produced at La Mama next year in their season. And uh, I'm lucky that I have a relationship with La Mama. This will be the fourth play of mine that's had a premiere there. And this play is called How to Eat an Orange. And it's a one-woman play about a visual artist and activist from Argentina whose name is Claudia Bernardi. And Claudia has an extraordinary story that involves being a survivor of the dirty war and the military junta in Argentina And also combined with an extraordinary family story that goes hand in hand in that. Her sister is a forensic anthropologist with whom she works on excavating mass graves. And that's happened in a variety of places around the world. And one of those places is El Mozote in El Salvador. And Claudia's story, which will be on stage performed by one woman, tells the story of what Claudia likes to describe is how circumstances can shape a life. And if you come to the play, some of the circumstances that you will see are unbelievable. It is the stuff of drama for sure. And it's also a hopeful story because it talks about something called Jusio Politico, which is a kind of justice that means that even after the perpetrator of the crime is dead, the crime still remains. And that there are forms of justice that can be found for survivors. And therein therein lies the the hope for change. Exactly. And it's interesting because Claudia, sometimes, you know, it's not often that I write plays about people that are, that I can talk to on the phone. And uh, Claudia is 
here in the United States and um, when she's not in Buenos Aires or in some other part of the world. I was talking to Claudia about hope, not for this play, actually. I was just like, where do you place your hope in these in these sometimes difficult times? And she brought up this idea of Husio Politico, which she believes is something that has never really existed anywhere else. Hmm. I think it's it's a great thing to... Sounds to fascinating. Well, yeah. You know, uh, Katrine, what I hear in everything that you're talking about is not only your passion, but your just exuding warmth and caring and compassion for our humanity. And that's what drives you and what I admired uh, about you since our meeting at Young Playwrights. It is that sensitivity to tapping into the voices of your character. And thanks for, for bringing up Young Playwrights. I got to work with you on that new project, the Diary 21 project. Yes. Uh, yeah. With um, the Holocaust Museum in New York. And um, that was where I really saw you in action. Do you have any shared memories uh, of that that we can just kind of go back to that wonderful moment. Yes, absolutely. I know that we did my play Dog and Wolf then. That was a very interesting project. There was an Anne Frank relationship, right? Yeah, yes. That's yeah. why we called the Diary 21. And you yes. did workshops with these young people. And then we yeah. their plays do a staged reading at the Vineyard Theater. Yes. The thing that was so wonderful about what you offered me with that because you offered that to us and that in that particular play is this idea of finding theater i mean everybody talks about underserved audiences and in a way that seems like a reductive way to say it because the majority of people in the united states do not go to the theater so uh, I think to say underserved is <laughs> is not exactly the accurate way of putting it. Mm -hmm. And I think that back then you were completely embodying this idea of bringing the theater to audiences and every audience is equally important. I mean, you can't say this audience is more important than this one. I think that that has really inspired me to continue to do that kind of work. And we did actually continue to do it with that very play. We did community um, outreach uh, tour where we went to a variety of places. And one of them was this great community center where the actor, John Daggett, who was in a wheelchair, was performing the play. And afterwards, one of the audience members said, I think you're going to need a, I think it's called a leg bag or something for, because you're, you've drank so much of water or liquid and you can't go to the bathroom. So you need to add that to your, uh, <laughs> and, and we were like, yeah. yeah, they said, they said Shakespeare wrote the play so that, so that he gave an opportunity for for the players to leave stage and go to the bathroom. <laughs> right. So we added that to the play, you know, and yeah. it, it took that audience member to tell us. Oh, gosh, I could so. just go on and on with you, Katrine. This is 
It's just so good to meet up with you again. Thank you for sharing these projects with us. What is the thing that you're probably most proud of in your works in terms of seeing a palpable change as a result of your craft? Oh, that is a very difficult question to answer. <laughs> I think I'm able to continue to collaborate with collaborators. For example, the I mentioned John Daggett, and also Nadia Bowers was the eye doctor in Eyes of the Heart, and that was in 2004. And, you know, when Nadia walked in the door, it was just a miracle. And just recently, we did a, a reading of my newest play, which is called White Savior. And, and, and I was able to ask Nadia to play the lead. And Jennifer Van Dyke, who is also one of my muses, uh, was playing her sister. So I think that I'm lucky that those people actually accept to come back and do and it again. <laughs> absolutely. And I'm so glad that we get to continue our collaboration. Uh, Me too. And in the future, I look forward to it. Thank you so Thank much, you. Katrine, for sharing your time and talent with me. Thank you, Fran. Find out more about what Fran is up to. Go to her website at firstonlinewithfran.com. This program was produced by March Hare Media and recorded at We Chief Studio Productions. <laughs>